0: thanks for listening to a long time in finance with jonathan ford and neil collins in partnership with briefcase news the service that brings intelligent curation and analysis to your media mantra. dumb money It's the dismissive term that financial insiders use for the great retail investing public. That's you and me. And it's also the name of a movie that's just been released, in the UK at least, telling the story of the 2021 stock market battle over a listed games retailer, GameStop, which pitted a ragtag group of retail investors against Wall Street's hedge fund establishment. Dumb Money, the film, presents this as a financial market revolution in which internet-enabled financial sans-culottes rose up during the pandemic, took down a Wall Street king, reclaimed control and stuck it to the man by executing that hardest-to-pull-off of market manoeuvres, the successful short squeeze. But was it really a financial revolution brought on by public disgust at the antics of Wall Street post-2008? And did anything really change as a result of this exercise? Or was it rather a throwback to something older, a Victorian-style stock squeeze? Here to discuss the whole saga, we're joined by an old friend of the show, Isabella Kaminska, founder of The Blind Spot and also senior finance editor at Politico. Hi Izzy.
1: Hi Jonathan and hi Neil. Thank you very much for having me back. It's lovely to be here.
0: I suppose we should start off by sort of summarising very quickly for the listeners this story and also trying to define a few of the terms which pop up. Okay, so GameStop, an unloved games retailer, gets heavily shorted by Wall Street In particular, some hedge funds, including one called Melvin Capital, which is run by the sort of anti-hero, the movie Gabe Plotkin. An internet enthusiast, Keith Gill, acquires a following on an internet forum called Wall Street Bets under the name Roaring Kitty and pushes a fundamental, what he claims is a fundamental analysis that GameStop's undervalued i.e. the crooks on Wall Street are destroying a viable company for their own selfish ends, and start buying up the shares to squeeze the shorts. Shorting, just for those who don't know exactly how it works, you borrow shares for a fee, sell them, and then buy them back, hopefully when they are cheaper.
2: I would just add that at the time he put on the short, it looked like a pretty decent bet, because this company was essentially a sort of video rental hangover from the past and it looked as though it was hugely overvalued in the market
0: because basically its future was behind it. Blockbuster would be the best analogy, wouldn't it? Yeah. So that's the sort of backdrop. Wall Street Bets brings together all these fans. They buy up most of the free float float in GameStop by simple virtue of holding the stock and not wanting to sell it back to the shorts. They basically put a tremendous squeeze on, which drives up the value, and in the end, obviously drives Melvin Capital, one of the hedge funds involved, out of business. But the question
2: that—that's a great result, really. Given (laughs) given the you know the little guys beat the big guys, I think that's important to establish that. But Uh, this story goes on.
0: I suppose that brings us to the first thing, which is although this is a story about a kind of internet sort of pitchfork mob and Wall Street bets and so forth, It really feels rather more like a sort of blast from the past than something entirely novel. I don't know what you make of that, Izzy. I mean, stock squeezes and corners were a huge feature of the 19th century US stock market, particularly in shares with big free floats like the railway companies. And there were various people who made great fortunes such as Cornelius Vanderbilt by cornering shares in various companies and doing their worst.
1: I mean, I think there is a parallel for sure. I mean, they say there's nothing new under the sun. And I I definitely live by that adage from crypto to all sorts of innovations. Almost every one of these uh, new fads has a parallel somewhere in history because there's only so So many ways you can cut the financial cake, in my opinion. So, yeah, I do think it's an old-fashioned kind of cornering. The interesting thing, really, was the people doing it and why they were doing it, the cultural aspect of the whole phenomenon. I mean we've always always had sort of retail punters and I think for even in the, you know, when Neil was doing Markets Live, like that era there, was, there were all the message boards and people kind of pushing around rumours and trying to create market footprints in their favoured positions. But the difference this time is a matter of scaling and I think that was what was new here. It was the social media, which it was like message boards 2.0, it allowed a massive sort of aggregation of all these crazy, mostly uninformed retail investors to get together and operate somewhat irrationally in the market. And that is new, I think.
2: And the speed, of course, that we, with which everything could happen because of electronics rather than uh, word of mouth, which is what drove it in the drove them in the past. Yeah, so
1: there was the access. And then there was also the kind of it, it was tied with this phenomenon we were seeing in the fintech space, which was best described as the democratization of finance trend, where you had a lot of platforms trying to come in and make stock investing cheaper and more accessible to almost anybody. That tied with the cultural kind of phenomenon plus the social media created the ingredients for a perfect storm.
0: I think if you look to the past, generally what happens in corners is that they are executed by, you know, in the 19th century, they tend to be executed by a a small group or even just an individual defending themselves against bear raiders. In this case, as you say, it's a a huge number of people and and they do mobilize an awful lot of money because they end up, the market cap of GameStop goes to something incredible, like sort of... uh, 50 billion or something ridiculous at one point.
2: Yeah, but don't forget that just reflected the marginal price of the shares multiplied by the number of shares there are. And if it's been driven up on relatively low volume, that's something which is quite easy to achieve. And as we saw, almost impossible to sustain.
1: Very wise words, Neil. (laughs) (laughs) But also the same can be said of crypto. So yes, absolutely.
2: Do we think that this movie is going to catch the public imagination. So people are going to say, if they can do it, so can I. And I'll be cleverer than them because I will get out at the top, which is what everybody believes that they can do.
0: There is some evidence that the film has revived some interest in what are called meme stocks, and maybe we should try and explain a little bit about what those are. In recent months, there have been a host of companies... That have suddenly rocketed in value. One being Tupperware. Do you remember Tupperware? You probably God, have some Tupperware uh, in your kitchen
2: probably, somewhere. Probably, probably the, the I've got you know <laughs> the the bottom and the non-matching top probably yes. is what I've got. Yes.
0: Okay. So in July, Tupperware, a much unloved stock which seems to have been the subject of a, quite a bit of shorting itself, had suddenly quintupled within a week or so and has become the latest in a line of meme stocks maybe maybe Izzy you can try and define for us what exactly a meme stock is and what it takes to become one
1: yeah i mean it's it's hard to really to pinpoint what a meme stock is because it could be anything that you know tickles the imagination of of a large crowd of young i guess mostly young investors so amc is a kind of uh, it tends to be like these these companies that are no longer, that they're sort of nostalgic almost. So like GameStop was this nostalgia for video games that the the millennials, it's not even millennials, I think it was like Generation C had grown up with and they didn't want to see the end and demise of their favorite pastime retail therapy experience. And then there was AMC, which is a cinema chain, but Bed Bath & Beyond was a meme stock for a while as well. Not sure what the nostalgia value there is. So (laughs) they
0: Beyond sounds a bit ominous. <laughs>
2: <laughs> uh, it was sentimentality for the comforts of home.
1: Yeah, so it's emotionally led investing and anything that tickles the kind of cultural preferences of this community, which which sees itself as, in, and, and actually takes pride in being financially illiterate. I mean, that's the interesting thing about the community. They refer to themselves as apes. They actually delight in taking the what like making irrational investing decisions. in fact, they celebrate it they don 't want the fundamentals to be properly evaluated they 're quite happy when 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 it doesn 't make sense
0: that's that 's interesting that I mean in the case of gamestop, of course, the central protagonist, this character called Keith Gill, who was a an analyst at Mass Mutual, an insurance company. He, on his sort of... He inhabits this character called Roaring Kitty. But his thesis, which he puts forward on the Wall Street bets, is supposedly a a rational argument that this company, GameStop, is fundamentally undervalued and it is being trashed, if you like, by these hard-nosed Wall Street investors for their selfish gain when it doesn't need to be. In fact, that's very, very central to his whole presentation of his case is that he's not just some sort of emotional ape ranter. He's, uh, he's somebody who's putting forward a real argument, But are you saying that that is is not really how this game is normally played?
1: It's hard to know what's true and not, because there's all sorts of conspiracy theory that, you know, actually the entire thing was a set up by some other hedge fund. And there was actually a very smart puppeteer (laughs) behind it all. That's all speculative.
2: Well, we love a good conspiracy (laughs) theory.
0: Who was that? (laughs)
1: <laughs> um, I don't think they've named him, but in the community, the Wall Street Bets community, there was this continuous right. sort of like speculation about whether or not it was actually some sort of sinister hedge fund that was, and, and the main guy, Keith Gill, so Roaring Kitty, his approach to it all was that he's just some guy looking at the market, he likes it, and he loves the stock, but actually the conspiracy theory is that he may have been a bit more of a front man. Not proven, we don't know. He testified very eloquently.
0: (laughs) We need to make this clear before his house gets burned down. (laughs) (laughs) But
2: this story is full of irony. And the one that I like best is the idea that the fundamental analysts who crunch all the numbers and come to a calculated decision, drawing on their years of experience, actually, when it comes to picking stocks, they're not much better than you and me an ape for example an ape like us yes well like me anyway
1: (laughs) (laughs) but what's interesting is the um phenomenon had like real world casualties obviously and i think what is overlooked is that that spirit of wall street bets had a role to play a little bit in the downfall of credit Suisse because if you recall the original rumortage back in i think it was around october 2022 also started from a wall street bets silver account and again unknown if um if if it was who was behind it or whether there was a sinister ulterior motive but that also created a similar momentum. But this time they went not for GameStop. The rumor pushed the narrative that Credit Suisse was about to collapse and everyone should move their money. And many months later, we discovered that actually that that did generate a massive liquidity drain out of Credit Suisse. So there you go.
2: So they were very successful. Now, there are people who say that selling short is somehow immoral. I don't buy that argument. But it seems curious that so many people held that view, given the fact that if you are selling short, your possible losses are theoretically infinite and you are taking a very considerable risk. Do you think that has, has played a part in the sort of moral tone that has been adopted on this particular stock and these particular meme stocks?
0: I think this goes. I think this goes back to the 19th century. I mean, it, once again, it's a very historic thing. Neils right shorts take a big risk, and therefore they are always very keen to put their thumb as firmly as possible on the scales when they go short. <laughs> so the thing which characterised 19th century bear raids and it comes through very strongly again in the GameStop story is this idea that the bears, Plotkin and his pals or whoever. Are effectively trying to undermine a viable business by shorting it and making suggestions that it's a disaster and that it's a failure and that it's not worth anything. In just the same way that people like Vanderbilt in the 19th century would put out rumors that businesses were going bust and then when they had shorted the shares in order to make sure that their bet came off. And I think that is the origin of a lot of the dislike of short selling and, and the the way in which it is restricted as far as possible, and the way in which disclosure, which of course is also a central thing in the GameStop stories, you ask yourself, why does this guy Plotkin end up in the crosshairs of Wall Street bets? He ends up in the crosshairs of Wall Street bets because he uses options to short GameStop. And he has to disclose this, which I don't think he has to do if he's just doing it conventionally. He has to disclose this on an SEC filing. And these apes are so infuriated that they are combing through every filing produced by the SEC relating to a hedge fund to see whether they can find out who is anyone who's shorting GameStop. And when they find Melvin Capital, of course, they make a big song and dance about it and come after them.
1: That is one definitely a key element. But I think the other less told part of this story is that it wasn't just the kind of conventional short sellers that they were attacking. In the early days of the whole phenomenon, that was certainly the case. But as Mm. the story evolved, it became clear that they themselves became convinced that they were up against... A whole industry of shadow shorts, and that the actual. The, Conspiracy. Died, like the, <laughs> the size of uh, shorts in the system against GameStop was much bigger than anyone appreciated, which is why they kept going. And so you'll remember that there were all these rumors. It's like, the, you know, hold, hold the position because, you know, they're about to topple the main guys, like the market makers. And that's how the story evolved from one about this Melvin guy to really putting. Institutions like Citadel at risk, this is how Ken Griffin ends up in the debate and why Robin Hood in the end, the platform that they were using to put their positions on, ended up doing a number on them, because it turns out that that platform was actually dependent on these liquidity market makers. And a lot of the shorts in the in the system weren't really conventional shorts in the sense of like I put a position and I I have to declare it in an SEC filing. They were more what you would describe as operational shorts, which is what market makers use on a day to day basis when they're creating liquid markets. And that is how Citadel, Hmm. which is a huge HFT, high frequency trading, algorithmic market maker, ended up becoming front and center of the story as well. That was the unexpected turn because when it became obvious that these market makers were at risk because of what was happening, that yeah. Robinhood essentially sold everybody out and closed the whole operation down.
2: Surely they, ha- they had no choice, did they, at that point? Because they needed a huge amount of capital. Well, they needed, they needed, needed to post-collateral. In order to, to meet their liquidity requirements for the SEC, surely.
1: Well, exactly. Robinhood, like, this is again... Part of the other interesting thing about the whole democratization of finance narrative is that these platforms aren't really entering the market on their own terms. They are very much depend, they're just the front end of a massive liquidity industrial complex. And behind them are the liquidity providers that they depend on to be able to provide cheap retail trades. Because if the- without the people behind them they wouldn't be able to do so and the reason they can afford to make those trades very affordable is because most of the time you know you're on the wrong side of the market it's not de- democratization of finance as much as feeding a whole bunch of lambs to the slaughter of these uh more sophisticated wow, liquidity think, traders um, well-
0: I well, think that's a bit rich. A, no, I, I, <laughs>
1: can you really get fair liquidity terms on these platforms? I don't think you can.
0: The point is you just don't know. And that's the real point that, that comes across is that Robin Hood, this supposedly kind of democratic entity that was essentially the means by which these Wall Street bettors were placing their bets, it was the front end of a bunch of market makers and those market makers were effectively applying a hidden charge it's often described as a rebate but they were applying a hidden charge to the trade the the customers and rebating some of that back to robin hood which was why it wasn't charging commission but of course that's not commission free that's just you don't know what the hell the commission is because you never get to see it and indeed you know i think robin hood is is if you if you look at the people who come out of this A little bit discredited, I would say, it it is Robin Hood. And since 2021, because they IPO'd their business on the back of the whole GameStop saga at a very high value, over the last three odd years that it's been on the market, two or three years it's been on the market, the share price has fallen by nearly three quarters. So Mm. it's real shades of grey here. It's hard to see who are the heroes and who are the villains.
2: And I think I would just say that the idea that trading is cost free, if you really believe that, then you've never been to a casino (laughs) because that's what it is. And somehow the bank or the broker has got to make a turn. And if it's not on the face of the contract, then it will be somewhere else. But free trading is a delusion.
1: Yeah, as my mum always used to say, if you pay peanuts, you get monkeys.
0: (laughs) Or apes. Yeah, very good. You get apes. Very good. So do you think anything really meaningful did change as a result of this? Or do you think this really is, like I do, a bit of a kind of internet-enabled throwback?
1: it is a throwback 100% but i i do think that the velocity of the information travel that is the interesting development and that's had a real bearing in the financial wobbles of this year with credit suisse as i said but also with silicon valley bank you know now post facto there's a lot of um reflection about what really happened and and central banks are saying you know do we need to have some sort of regulation of what can and cannot be said on social media as a result and i mean try to regulate that i don't know how you would do
2: it (laughs) best of luck i'd say
1: but that's the interesting (laughs) development that i think is new and different because we've never been in a more connected environment hedge funds and the sophisticated parts of the financial market have obviously always had an advantage in terms of comms and you know bloomberg machines and whatever but as the kind of little people start to organize that really as you say that mobilization and if they can forge a kind of an amoeba or a blob that can then essentially challenge the big guys. i an weird. amoeba blob. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I, think that's, I
2: think that's wishful thinking.
0: No, I, th- I agree with you. I think it is a, an interesting cultural phenomenon. And the question, I suppose, which is absolutely key, is was Roaring Kitty right? Was, was GameStop actually a good investment or not? And I don't know, it's very difficult to tell. I mean, the shares have fallen right back from their peaks by about 70%. But they're still much higher than they were pre-corner. And but, the company made a profit last year after years of losses, but only after massive and some say possibly unsustainable cost cuts. Yeah, so and, who knows?
2: And capital reorganizer and capital. And a capital reorganizer. Huge injection of capital yeah. paid for by these smaller guys to a great extent.
0: So who knows? Who the knows? jury, as they say, is out.
2: I would like the, um, the 19th century doggerel which says he who oh. sells what isn't isn't must buy it back or go to prison.
0: That's still true, as true as it ever was.
1: I, I thought it was a fascinating sort of cultural phenomenon, as, as you say. And I am going to keep an eye out because I don't think we've heard um, the end of it. I think they will be back. It's just a question of what will be the next, uh, you know, target and how that flash mob will organize itself. But I I suspect we will see them sooner rather than later.
2: Yeah, Um, irresistible, I
0: suspect, thanks to the social media. Yeah. Meanwhile, I'm off to buy some Tupperware shares.
2: (laughs) (laughs) That was a Long Time in Finance with Jonathan Ford and Neil Collins. Production and editing by Nick Hilton and our sponsorship partner is briefcase.news. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review it on your podcast app as that will help new listeners find us.